I must say, women uh, and black poets who are writing are, as far as I'm concerned, much more satisfying in terms of sharing, sharing experience and evocative language. Well, so much of what is called poetry or is labeled poetry today, I find uh, the most charitable word that I can use is obstructionist. I think that so much of what is called poetry becomes uh, constructs that are erected in the same way so much of, of so many of our buildings and, and other artifacts are to separate us rather than to make bridges or to pull us together. Welcome to What's Left, a weekly political discussion challenging the mainstream left. I'm Eduardo Barca with co-host, uh, writer and teacher Jessica, and community organizing socialist Kenny Cepeda. We are online at whatsleftpodcast.com. Uh, you can find the link to our blog in the episode notes. Uh, you can also find our personal social media handles as at Don Eduardo Barca and at ZDK on Instagram and Jesse's Twitter handle as at jhomey89. Uh, please subscribe, rate, view. Uh, turn on your notifications and share your favorite episode where we have this episode. Thank you. All right. So today we're having tea or coffee or chocolate. Butter beer. I'm having butter beer. Okay. <laughs> I actually and don't butter. know what butter beer is. This is my first time. It's Harry Potter inspired. Okay, cool. <laughs> All right. And what are you having, Kenny? I'm having water. I just need to hydrate. I've been working a lot. So. Okay. <laughs> but I'll have a tea coming in a minute. So. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> well, we're having this little um, spe- a holiday special, uh, like vacation special, solstice special, winter break special, whatever. It works for anyone. Uh, on some, just an easy episode, since we decided to have uh, a non-heavy topic uh, episode. And this is special because I thought maybe we would uh, take some of our favorite passages, political passages that we like, anything that we have been inspired by. Uh, maybe writers and uh, uh, political figures that are not well known or just apart from your normal, like Noam Chomsky and apart from like Malcolm X. Apart from, like, bigger. Normal. Her normal is not Noam Chomsky. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, apart from really well known, I guess. So we'll be having some passages. Uh, we'll be having. We'll be reading some passages that uh, move us, inspire us, call to us. Things that we have read and share with the public. We'll be reading a read aloud, as well as sharing insights onto what, why was it meaningful to us? Any takes or any questions or anything or anything that we should add? We're gonna say that uh, Lipson is not with us today, right? Because uh, he's on uh, vacation. I don't know if we're allowed to say where, but he's somewhere in the U.S. with family and hopefully having a good time. And, you know, uh, happy holidays to you, uh, Lipson, if you're listening. You are, actually. You'll be editing this. Happy Christmas, Indy and everybody and Brandy and family. Happy holidays, Brandy and Andy. All right. And it's very unusual for him to take some time. So this is also a special, you know, Recent, we want to show him that we can do it without him too. So that's right. <laughs> that's right. That's right. All right. As I'm searching for, okay. So 
guess I'll go first since, as Jess said, it was my idea, so I should probably go first. Let me just move this here. Uh, <clears throat> so I'm going to be reading a passage from Our Word is Our Weapon, which is uh, Marcos' uh, book. It has several passages. They weren't necessarily a book, and they were several letters and different writings at different points of his life. Uh, he is part of the EZLN, and that was uh, a revolutionary Zapatista movement uh, called Zapatista Army of National Liberation in Chiapas, Mexico. And the passage I will be reading is uh, called 15 Years, that was written in September 1999. And it was a passage of his reflection when he first uh, became involved in the guerrilla force of the Zapatista movement. And as many people know, or I don't know, I think this channel with the public that we have might know that EZLN uh, had its formation oh, years ago, in, but really well known in 1994 because of NAFTA and the policies under the uh, Clinton administration and what that did to the Mexican people. So uh, they took over San Cristobal uh, de las Casas, uh, which is the, I think the capital of Chiapas, if I'm not mistaken, but it's a very well uh, well-known touristy spot now today in Chiapas. And I love it there. It's not hot. As most people think that like Mexico's just a desert. No, it's it's a small uh, city town-like, but um, cold up in the mountains. And so I'll be reading from that from 15 years. Uh, and there'll be in the episode notes below. 15 years ago, every August, year after year, the mountains of the Mexican Southeast managed to give birth to a particularly luminous dawn. I don't know the scientific causes, but during this dawn, this one single dawn in the whole of a disconcerting August of the, the moon is a hammock of swaying iridescence. The stars marshal themselves to encircle and center and the Milky Way proudly lights up its thousands wounds of clotted light. In this August of the end of the millennium, the calendar pointed to the sixth day when this dawn appeared, and with this swaying moon came back to a memory of another, August, and another sixth, 15 years ago, when I began my entry into these mountains that were and are, like it or not, home, school, road, and door. I began my entry in August, and I didn't complete it until September. I should confess something to you. When I laboriously climbed the first of the steep hills that abound in these parts, I was sure it would be my last. I wasn't thinking of revolution, of high human ideals, or a shining future for the dispossessed and forgotten of always. No, I was thinking I'd made the worst decision in my life, that the pain that squeezed my chest and more and more would end up totally closing off my increasingly skimpy airway that the best thing for me would be to go back and let the revolution manage itself without me, along with the similar rationalizations. If I didn't go back, it was only because I didn't know the way back. All I knew was that I had to follow the compañero preceding me, who, judging by the cigarette he was smoking while effortlessly negotiating the mud, seemed to be merely out for a stroll. I didn't think that one day I'd be able to climb a hill while, <clears throat> while smoking and not feel as if I was dying with each step, or that a time would come when I'd be able to manage the mud that was abundant underfoot as the stars are overhead. No, I wasn't thinking at all then. I was concentrating on every breath I was trying to take, 
what finally happened is that at some point we reached the highest crest of the hill and the man in charge of the meager column, we were three, said we would rest there. I let myself fall in the mud that seemed closest and told myself that perhaps it wouldn't be so hard to find the way back and that all I would have to do would be to walk down for another eternity and that someday I would have to reach the point where the truck had dropped us off. I was making my calculations, including the excuses I would give them and give myself for abandoning the beginning of my career as a guerrilla. When the compañero approached me and offered me a cigarette, I refused with a shake of my head, not because I didn't want to talk, but because I tried saying, no thanks. And only a groan had come out. After a bit, taking advantage of the fact that the man in charge had gone off some distance to satisfy what is referred to as a basic biological need, I used the .20 caliber rifle that I was carrying more like a walking stick than a combat weapon and pulled myself up best as I could. That was how I was able to see something from the top of the mountain that had a profound impact on me. No, I didn't look down. I didn't look towards the twisted scribble of the river, nor the weak light of the bonfires that dimly illuminated a distant hamlet, nor to the neighboring mountains that painted the ravine, sprinkled with small villages, fields, and pastures. I looked upward. I saw a sky that was a gift and a relief, no more like a promise. The moon was smiling nocturnal swing, the stars sprinkling blue lights, and the ancient serpent of luminous wounds that you could call the Milky Way seemed to be resting its head there very far away. I stayed looking for a time, knowing that I'd have to climb up the wrench hill to see this dawn, that the mud, the slips, the stones that hurt my flesh inside and out, the tired lungs incapable of pulling in the necessary air, the cramped legs, the anguish clinging to the rifle, walking stick to, my, to free my boots from the imprisoning mud, the feeling of the loneliness and desolation, the weight I was carrying on my back, which I came to know later was only a token since it really, in reality, there would always be three times that or more. Anyway, that token weighted tons to me that all of that and much more that would come later is what had made it possible for that moon, those stars, and the Milky Way to be there and no other place. When I heard from behind the orders to renew the march, up in the sky, a star surely fled up, fed up by the subjugation to the black roof, managed to break away and by falling to leaf, a brief and fugitive trace on the nocturnal blackboard. That's what we are. I said to myself, fallen stars that barely scratch the sky of history with a scroll. As far as I knew, I had only thought this, but apparently I had thought it out loud because the compañero asked, ¿Qué dices? Or what did he say? I don't know, I replied the man in charge. <clears throat> replied the man in charge. Could be he's already got a fever. We have to hurry. What I'm telling you happened 15 years ago. 30 years ago, a few people scratched history. And knowing this, they began calling to many others so that by dint of scribbling, scratching, and scrolling, they would end up rending the veil of history so that the light would finally be seen. That not that and nothing else is the struggle we are making. And so if you ask us what we want, we will unashamedly answer to open a crack in history. Perhaps you are asking what happened to my intention to turn back and abandon the guerrilla life. And you might suppose that the vision of that first dawn in the mountains made me abandon my idea of fleeing, lifted my morale 
and firmed my revolutionary conscience. Well, you are wrong. I put my plan into operation and went down the hill. What happened is I mistook which side to go down. Instead of going down the slope that would take me back to the road and from there to civilization, I went down the side that took me deeper into the rainforest and that led me to another hill and another and another. That was 15 years ago. Since then, I have kept climbing hills and I have kept mistaking which side to go down. And every August 6th keeps coming, keeps giving birth to a special dawn. And all of us keep falling stars, barely scratching our history. Valley with nuts on top, health to you. And wait a minute, wait. What is that shining so bright in the distance? It looks like a crack. So I guess, so for me, it's like, I guess, I don't know. There's a lot of feelings I have around this because Sucumanate Marcos was very young and he was leaving this privileged life. He was leaving this privileged life of comfort and he was a studied person. He went to university and just like having this soap in his heart that he wanted to commit change and transform society and would start and would join, not start, join, excuse me. Because a lot of people think that he was, no, as he clearly acknowledges, like this, this group of Zapatistas had already begun before him, like joining this um, guerrilla force to me is very moving. The fact that you just left everything, your family, your belongings, your friends, your community, and to join this revolutionary cause, which later on became one of the well, well-known, but not much covered uh, revolutionary uh, guerrilla forces in Mexico. This is to me like just, I don't know, the, the, the writing of just like the, the impetus or the beginning or the genesis of, of, of his revolutionary way, parting away from his social life to join a new family, a new community where they would create schools, create democratic assemblies and, and their own, like take care of their own life, um, village excuse me, take care of their own uh, group and community by healing themselves with medicinal um, properties, you know. To me, that is very moving, what he did. And sometimes I think to myself, would I be capable of doing something like that? Would I, you know, it's like, to me, sometimes I like, ah. And so he was younger than what I am now. But that is like, maybe to me, the inspiring thought that someone else took that time for themselves and that was their journey. And, uh, and he took the risk because a lot of, a lot of people who covered and a, a lot of the, the Zapatista movements and a lot of revolutionaries in Mexico, in Mexico, they were imprisoned after that. There's a good documentary. I'll also put in the episode notes um, of journalists that were covering this, that were imprisoned in Mexico. And, um, and yeah, so anyhow, so, that, that's it. And we'll do a Zapatista uh, whole episode at some other time. Anything else? No sé que quieran. No, I don't know if anyone else wants to say something about it. I really liked that passage. Like two things that just come to mind. Like one, just this idea of like true revolution being at least in part rooted in nature. Like mm. 
actual name. I mean, just some of the, like even politics aside, like it's a really beautiful description, yeah. you know, just like really detailed, like looking at the the stars and the metaphor of, of yeah, so much of what he describes. Um, so I really like that. And then also just that idea that like, I don't know, I feel like there's, some people have this idea that like radicals or revolutionaries are just like born that way and they never have a doubt and they never like are tempted mm-hmm. to leave the movement or you know yeah. that they don't have to weigh so many different elements of sacrifice and like what's the right choice to to make and so it's it's interesting and I know like you said he's very young when he's writing this but yeah I just struck by that like this sort of intention like I'm gonna leave like I'm gonna leave the the Korea life um but then changing his mind yeah I think uh it's very you know like you said it seems almost like a spiritual you know journey like uh you know and like I I think I attribute that to like nature too and like that is a very important part that is that uh that needs to be accounted for I think you know for having success in the, in the world that we want to create, you know, like, uh, because like, I think historically a lot of people have thought about revolution and paid attention most to more to the industrial workers, right. And rather than like the peasants and, and also like what is very admirable for, for at this, you know, from this passage in the context of, of when this happened is that this is like 1990s, right? 1999. He wrote this, but, it all began in 1994 and all that because against NAFTA. Yeah, and exactly. And, and so and you got to understand that in the context of revolutionary movements in, in, in the world, in Latin America specifically, they were getting crushed at this point or being decimated, like a lot of the revolutionary arm um, like movements. Uh, and, you know, Mexico, like in the Zapatistas said, it, it's not over yet. You know, and they're still fighting in, in ways that people fought for like 30 to 40 years, uh, you know, as fraught with like you know, mistakes and whatever, you know, you can have to be critical, you know, those times. But still, it's admirable because like, again, no one else, very few countries were doing that at that time. Every, all the other movements were dying out. Well. I recommend this, and if anyone wants to continue reading from his work, um, Our Word is Our Weapon from Subcomandante Su Marcos. That's an apostle, I'll put that in the episode notes. Yeah. All right. Someone else. On to Kenny. <laughs> okay, so I sent you guys the link. Um, okay. Maybe we can put that link on the, you know, the the episode notes, you yeah. can follow. Yeah. Um, let me see. Sorry, just gotta find it. And so, I actually run into this art, this reading by accident. Um, at the time, uh, Lipson and I were uh, reading something from Rosa Luxemburg, yeah. and I was trying to find her piece on reform or revolution, um, which is like a very influential, um, but kind of obscure, you know, reading. And so I ran into this by accident, which is like a lot shorter um, synthesized and it kind of like marked a, a, a change within me, you know, of understanding and really like questioning 
my politics because like since I was a kid, I had grew up in Guatemala. You know, war was part of my life, not directly, but like in the, in the context of my life. You know, like 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 I was saying, you know, um, the the you know like leftist arm movement in Guatemala was uh, ended officially, at least like the official figure was in 1996. You know, this is post the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, and so I was actually in school and they were teaching me how to vote. And, and so, um, again, like my idea of revolution was very idealistic, you know, and like I grew up, I grew up in high school and I was always like glamorizing a lot of things, but like, I didn't, I don't think I knew what revolution really meant, or at least like it, 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 there was a change to this. And like, I, I attributed to this reading that, you know, kind of like in a simple, in a sort of simple way, explain what, what revolution versus reform is. And so I'm going to read a uh, part of it. I'm going to read the introduction uh, because this is a speech actually that uh, this guy, Daniel de Leon gave in 1890, 1896, I believe. Um, sorry, there, sorry. Yeah. In November, 1896 uh, in New York, uh, he's talking about, um, unionizing and there was a vote. Uh, you can read the context. I, I don't know too much about the context, but uh, again, the reading is what really um, influenced me. And so I'm just gonna read the introduction. And so it goes, uh, uh, so he's speaking to a bunch of people, a group of people, uh, union workers actually, because uh, uh, Daniel De Leon was a union, um, like a Marxist you know, guy. And so he's like, Mr. Chairman and working men of Boston, I have got into the habit of putting two and two together and drawing my conclusions. When I was invited to come to Boston, the invitation reached me at, the, at about the same time as an official information that a reorganization of the party was contemplated in the city of Boston. I put the two and two together. I put the, the two together and I drew the conclusion that part of the purpose of the invitation was for me to come here to tell you upon what lines we in New York organize and upon what lines we, quote unquote, wicked socialists of New York and Brooklyn gave the capitalist class last November this 16,000 vote black eye. And then he goes on to talk about, you know, organization and stuff. But this is the part that really like transformed the way I understood, um, you know, reform and revolution. Uh, and this is where I personally started leaning to, you know, my view of my politics as revolutionary in the sense that, you know, that is what we need, not reform, you know. And, and so let me read what he defines or he tries to explain uh, reform is. So he goes on and he says, uh, take for instance, a poodle. You can reform him in a lot of ways. You can shave his whole body and leave a tassel at the tip of his tail. You may bore a hole through each ear and tie a blue bow on one and a red bow on, another, on the other. You may put a brass collar around his neck with your initials on and trim little, uh, and trim little blanket on his back. Yet throughout a poodle he was and a poodle he remains. Each of these changes probably wrought a corresponding change in the poodle's life. When shorn of all his hair except a tassel at the tail, at the tail's tip, he was owned by a wag who probably cared 
only for the fun he could get out of his pet. When he appears gaily decked in bows, in bows probably his young mistress' attachment is of tender sort. When later we see him in the fancier outfit, the treatment he received and the uses he put in, he put to maybe yet again and probably are different. Each of these transformations or stages may mark a veritable epoch in the poodle's existence. And yet, essentially, a poodle he was and a poodle he is and a poodle he will remain. That is reform. And so then it goes on to revolution. Um, but when we look back myriads of years or, proje or project ourselves into far future physical, physical cataclysms and trace the development of, of animal life from the invertebrate to the vertebrate, from the lizard to the bird, from the quadruple, quadruple and mammal till we come to the prototype of the poodle and finally reach the poodle himself and so forward, then do we find radical changes at each step? Changes from within that alter the very essence of his being and that put or will put upon him each time a stamp that alters the very system of his existence. That is revolution. So with society, whenever a change leaves an internal mechanism untouched, we have reform. Whenever the internal mechanism is changed, we have revolution. Of course, no internal, no internal change is possible without external manifestations. Eternal changes denoted by the revolution or evolution of the lizard into the eagle will accompany it with external marks, so with society. And therein lies one of the pitfalls in which uh, dilentatism or reforms invariably tumble. They have noticed that externals change with internals and they rest satisfied with mere external changes without looking behind the curtain. But of this more presently, we socialists are not reformers, we are revolutionists. We socialists do not propose to change forms. We care nothing for forms. We want change from the inside of the mechanisms of society. Let the firm take care of itself. We see in England a crown monarch. We see in Germany a third emperor. We see in this country an uncrowned president. We fail to see the essential difference between Germany, England, or America. That being the case, we are skeptics as to forms. We are like grown children in the sense that we like to look at the inside of things and find out what's in there, what is there. One more preliminary explanation. Socialism is lauded by some as a, an angelic movement, by others is decried as devilish scheme. Hence you find the uh, Gomperises blowing hot and cold on the subject. And Harry Lloyd, with those with whose capers to your sorrow, you are, a, you are more familiar than I, pronouncing himself a socialist in one place and in another running socialism down. Socialism is neither an aspiration of angels nor the, a plot of devils. Socialism moves with its feet firmly planted in the ground and its head not lost in the clouds. It takes science by the hand, asks her to lead and goes whithersoever she points. It does not take science by the hand saying, 
I shall follow you to the end of the road, if it please me. No, it takes her by the hand and says, whithersoever thou leadest thither, am I bound to go? The socialists consequently move us intelligent men. We do not mutiny because instead of having wings, we have arms and cannot fly as we would wish. What then with the icing, um, what then? With an eye single upon the differences between reform and revolution, those of socialism mean to point out that I shall take up two or three of what I may style the principal nerve centers of the movement. I hope uh, you can understand my reading, but um, yeah. So to me, again, it's it's a sort of an, a scientific an attempt to explain scientifically, you know, uh, through I guess the comparison of evolution. Um, the, the difference between you know just cosmetic changes, right? When we talk about like policies and or uh, voting, or you know like who the hell the president is, you know this is this is when I started to split away from like the the binary of Democrats and you know or or like Bernie Sanders being you know a, a sort of like guide for revolution. Um, and so I don't know. Do you guys have any thoughts? Any any questions? Well, I mean, this is, I think there's more to this, right? But like, for me, it is something that we, that we have clearly discussed on what's left, something you both and Andy have challenged me on when I have said that, like, I would like to maintain some, some presence in, in like the current state of affairs. And then, like I'm voting certain areas and the reform and revolutionary that, that the, the, the versus the, the reform versus revolution conversation is something that uh, is clearly outlined here. And I appreciate this because you, you do stand by this. I, we've had this discussion, Kenny, where I've felt sometimes like I've um, maybe kept some maybe glimmer of hope where, we could have some sustain a little bit as the revolution comes. And this clearly outlines there cannot be any, it has to be it's clearly marked as one or the other. Um, and socialists are not reformers. We are revolutionists. Um, we socialists do not propose to change forms. We are nothing for forms. We want a change of the inside of the mechanism of society, let the form to take care of itself. We see in England, a and it goes on, but yeah. So I I, I appreciate um, knowing where you were inspired or where you got that uh, the root of your decisions or the root of your of your political influence in this in this passage. And I think it kind of helps. Oh, sorry. sorry. Go ahead, Penny. I just wanted again, and it was an accidental find. I, I wasn't looking for it. I didn't know. I still don't know much about Daniel De Leon. Uh, but because I was trying to study someone else, I ran into it, you know, and it just sank, you know. Um, and then, like, I think uh, Rosa Luxemburg does a better job at, you know, going deeper into this, you know, analyzing this uh, tension, right, of reform or revolution. Sorry. I think it kind of crystallizes for me. Or I don't know. It makes me, I think we should do, maybe you guys did this before I joined, but I think we should at some point do a, an episode 
just focused on the word revolution and like the concept of it. Um, because I think we throw it around a lot. Well, socialists especially <laughs> throw it around a lot. Um, and I think this does a really good job of like outlining like, yeah, the, the metaphor of the poodle and everything. And I, unlike evolution as like a metaphor, but also like revolution, like revolve literally has evolve in it like in the word. Um, and I know I've heard critiques of even not like the notion of revolution, not on what's left, but just in general of like a full circle and that it, that it, it takes you back to the same place that you began. Um, so I think there's some interesting like critiques out there of that as the frame framework or that as like the goal that we hold up and I think there's been times on what's left I mean just speaking for myself where like I'm talking about like yeah this revolution that we're fighting for um but without really being able to define it um which part of that's just the nature of you don't really know what something is until you create it until you do it or start doing it at least I think that's generally true for most things but I don't know. Yeah, this is just getting the wheels turning for me. And I hope it's something we can kind of return to, especially Andy. I feel like Andy uses the term revolution more than any of us. <laughs> so maybe we should press press harder on like, like what it, what is this revolution that we talk about? We know we don't want reform for sure. Like, fuck the poodle. But, <laughs> but I do think that like, like you said, you know, like on the surface, most people, like when they talk about revolution, you know, like you know he kind of mentions uh they really talk about just like cosmetic stuff you know and like that doesn't change again like the inner mechanisms of a system right and and so you know you still have a poodle <laughs> regardless oh speaking of dogs <laughs> what's her name again Eduardo? or his or her her her, she's Lolly. Lolly, Jasmine's <laughs> right by me. Where's Jasmine? <laughs> <laughs> Not as lively right now. Okay, is it my turn? Yeah, it's your turn. Okay, I think I'm. Yeah, okay, I'm gonna do Audrey Lord. Um, actually, if you give me one second, I bet I can find this because it's it's pretty famous, actually. Okay, so. <sighs> this is a really hard assignment for me because Eduardo was like, pick anything. <laughs> I was like, anything? You're asking an English major to pick any passage off of my entire shelf. Um, but okay, so Audrey Lord, famous um poet, black lesbian, feminist, I don't know, all the labels, but um, I don't know. I guess I picked this because for me, it really crystallizes the connection between poetry and politics. And I mean, my, like, I grew up, like, ever since I can remember, like, just loving to read and write um, and not really thinking of it as, like, I mean, as a kid, like, you know, unless you have some sort of influence, like, I don't think a lot of kids are, like, thinking about you know, the poems that they write or whatever as inherently political. But, you know, as you get older, right, and you start to kind of evolve your own political frameworks, 
um, you start to think about this stuff. And I don't know, I just really love it's a it's a really short essay um, that just yeah kind of talks about like the, the argument is in the title. The title of the essay is "Poetry is Not a Luxury." So yeah, I'll just I'll just read. Okay, so the quality. Oh, and this is I don't know what year. I want to say does it stay on the PDF? It's like 80s. I think. 85. 1985. Yeah. Um, the quality of light by which we scrutinize our lives has direct bearing upon the product which we live, and upon the changes which we hope to bring about through those lives. It is within this light that we form those ideas by which we pursue our magic and make it realized. This is poetry as illumination, for it is through poetry that we give name to those ideas which are, until the poem, nameless and formless, about to be birthed, but already felt. That distillation of experience from which true poetry springs births thought as dream births concept, as feeling births idea, as knowledge births precedes understanding. As we learn to bear the intimacy of scrutiny and to flourish within it, as we learn to use the products of that scrutiny for power within our living, those fears which rule our lives and form our silences begin to lose their control over us. For each of us as women, there is a dark place within where hidden and growing our true spirit rises, beautiful and tough as chestnut stanchions against your nightmares, nightmare of weakness and of impotence. These places of possibility within ourselves are dark because they are ancient and hidden. They have survived and grown strong through that darkness. Within these deep places, each one of us holds an incredible reserve of creativity and power, of unexamined and unrecorded emotion and feeling. The woman's place of power within each of us is neither white nor surface. It is dark, it is ancient, and it is deep. When we view living in the European mode only as a problem to be solved, we rely solely upon our ideas to make us free. For these were what the White Fathers told us were precious. But as we come into as we come more into touch with our own ancient non-European consciousness of living as a situation to be experienced and interacted with, we learn more and more to cherish our feelings and to respect those hidden sources of our power from where true knowledge and therefore lasting action comes. At this point in time, I believe that women carry within ourselves the possibility for fusion of these two approaches so necessary for survival, and we come closest to this combination in our poetry. I speak here of poetry as a revelatory distillation of experience, not the sterile word play that too often the White Fathers distorted the word poetry to mean in order to cover a desperate wish for imagination without insight. For women, then, poetry is not a luxury. It is a vital necessity of our existence. It forms the quality of the light within which we predicate our hopes and dreams towards survival and change, first made into language, then into idea, then into more tangible action. Poetry is the way we help give name to the nameless, so it can be thought. The farthest horizons of our hopes and fears are cobbled by our poems, carved from the rock experiences of our daily lives. As they become known to and accepted by us, our feelings and the honest exploration of them become sanctuaries and spawning grounds for the most radical and daring of ideas. They become a safe house for that difference so necessary to change in the conceptualization of any meaningful action. 
Right now, I could name at least 10 ideas I would have found intolerable or incomprehensible and frightening, except as they came after dreams and poems. This is not idle fantasy, but a disciplined attention to the true meaning of it feels right to me. We can train ourselves to respect our feelings and to transpose them into a language so they can be shared. And where that language does not yet exist, it is our poetry which helps to fashion it. Poetry is not only dream and vision, it is the skeleton architecture of our lives. It lays the foundations for a future of change, a bridge across our fears of what has never been before. Possibility is neither forever nor instant. It is not easy to sustain belief in its efficacy. We can sometimes work long and hard to establish one beachhead of real resistance to the deaths we are expected to live, only to have that beachhead assaulted or threatened by those canards we have been socialized to fear or by the withdrawal of those approvals that we have been warned to seek for safety. Women see ourselves diminished or softened by the, by the falsely benign accusations of childishness, of non-universality, of changeability, of sensuality. And who asks the question, am I altering your aura, your ideas, your dreams, or am I merely moving you to temporary and reactive action? And even though the latter is no mean task, it is one that must be seen within the context of a need for true alteration of the very foundations of our lives. The White Fathers told us, I think, therefore I am. The Black mother within each of us, the poet, whispers in our dreams, I feel, therefore I can be free. Poetry coins the language to express, this, to express and charter this revolutionary demand, the implementation of that freedom. However, experience has told us that action is in the now is also necessary, always. Our children cannot dream unless they live. They cannot live unless they are nourished. And who else will, fe will feed them the real food without which their dreams will be no different from ours? If you want us to change the world someday, we at least have to live long enough to grow up, shouts the child. Sometimes we drug ourselves with dreams of new ideas. The head will save us. The brain alone will set us free. But there are no, no new ideas still waiting in the wings to save us as women, as human. There are only old and forgotten ones, new combinations, extrapolations, and recognitions from within ourselves, along with the renewed courage to try them out. And we must constantly encourage ourselves and each other to attempt the heretical actions that our dreams imply, and so many of our old ideas disparage. In the front of our move toward, in the forefront of our move toward change, there is only poetry to hint at possibility made real. Our poems formulate the implications of ourselves, what we feel within and dare make real or bring action into accordance with our fears, our hopes, our most cherished terrors. For within living structures defined by profit, the linear power by institutional dehumanization, our feelings were not meant to survive. Kept around as unavoidable adjuncts or pleasant pastimes, feelings were ex expected to kneel to thought as women were expected to kneel to men. But women have survived as poets and there are no new pains. We have felt them all already. We have hidden the, that fact in the same place where we have hidden our power. They surface in our dreams and it is our dreams that point the way to freedom. Those dreams are made realizable through our poems that give us the strength and courage to see, to feel, to speak and to dare. 
if what we need to dream to move our spirits most deeply and directly toward and through promise is discounted as a luxury, then we give up the core, the fountain of our power, our womanness. We give up the future of our worlds. For there are no new ideas. There are only new ways of making them felt, of examining what those ideas feel like being lived on Sunday morning at 7 a.m. after brunch, during wild love, making war, giving birth, mourning our dead. While we suffered the old longings, battled the old warnings and fears of being silent and impotent and alone, while we taste new possibilities and strengths. That was longer than I realized. <sighs> well, I guess, I mean, I, I love this. That's art and political, you know, because you can have both. And she does a good job at it. And I just love that um, the written word, or just in this case, like she discusses a lot about um, the necessity for us, or for specifically women, like and 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 just the poetry and its place in in necessity, the art of spoken word, like to to have that as a means to be able to to share any political thought or to also express yourself and what you're going through, your experience, etc., is also like very healing. And uh, so I I just like that she's able to put, because she is able to, that's Audre Lorde, of course, poetry and um, the politicalness together. So this is just my initial reaction to it. I've always thought she was cool. I haven't read out for every, every part of her work, every, 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 um, all her, her, her writings, but I appreciate you sharing this with us, Jess. Yeah. I, what comes up to me is like the, multi-dimensional you know like approach to thinking of you know like struggle and like like because that's something that's completely missing in a lot of the stuff that i've read you know like marxism and stuff or like things about social change like um you know i just love there's more like like room for being an actual human right because like we're not just logical people you know mm -hmm. we're not just like in in and, and like that's you know like when we're talking about all these technology fighting you know like uh, um, capitalism and, and, and like systems of profit like she says um, you know I think that that's something that I've struggled with like in the past this whole year you know uh, in the sense of we have Lipson asked me once before, like, how do you sustain yourself? And like, you have to have other things that root you because if you're just like engaged in logic and like, you know, like thinking about methodical stuff, and if you're not leaving your the other parts that make you human, and you know, like, you get lost. And I and I think like often like we attribute a lot of these things just to, and I I think that maybe that's where Lipson and I may agree that. I see it as training, right? Like, because yes, I'm a man, but I also have emotions, but I've been trained to not have emotions. You know, I mentioned before, like being emotionally castrated, you know, and, 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 and you know, so it's, it's another casualty of this world. And like, so like, you know, this reminds me that, you know, like, you know, yeah, it, it focuses on women, right? But it makes me think, you know, too, about my own humanity. I wanted to add too, like I, 
in order for us to be able to speak into that humanity, uh, Kenny, in order for us to be able to have other like thoughts about either revolution or or be a part of move, of a movement or to engage or to be in in a working group or you know you have it takes mental space and sometimes we are clouded or we have other experiences that we are stopped by or blocked by and rationalizing or thinking these or is not sometimes what we need and she says it clearly here the white father's told us i think therefore i am the black mother within each of us the poet whispers in our dreams i feel therefore i can be free to be free of you know to be able to share what's within you poetry points a language to express internal the revolutionary demands the implementation of that freedom to to really um delve deeply into your experience and in this particular she's speaking to women here because she says for the women then poetry is not a luxury and i think um that will be a part of the process to to heal that's also part of the process to be able to to be in this movement to 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 be a revolutionary to be uh an organizer it's also to uh sustain that humanity within us yeah and i i think in a healthy society emotion and intuition and instinct like goes with logic right it's like it, it they're not so oppositional i feel like in our society and even to some extent within various movements they they like brush up against each other but i don't actually think that that's natural it's common but i don't think it's how it has to be um yeah like kenny was saying like it it's at least partly i think trained into us and i, I think i brought up in the podcast before um sister morningstar has that term like instinct injury this idea that like for many of us um we sustain like injuries to our natural instinct especially women like very, from very early on, like from literally birth, like the birth process. Um, and then like carry that injury with us and then it becomes a block in various ways. And I think in some instances like that includes like politically. Um, so, yeah. I love, I love Audre Lorde. As much as I love her essays and stuff, I love her poetry more though. So people should go read her poetry. Well, we'll include the in the episode notes a link to that for folks to find it. I feel like this is something we could do like every once in a while. You know what I mean? Yeah. All right. I um, promise I'll bring something more poetic next time. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah, that's fine. There's so much, so many good texts, but yeah, there are. It's so hard many. to just pick like a couple. Siéntate, siéntate. Please keep that in, Andy. <laughs> it's because she's everywhere, and I think I'm supposed to keep her in one place. Rafa is my very close friend. He works at a Chavez Elementary School, and he's known me for a very long time, but always house at his house. But uh, sometimes I just can't. And I was 
I was able to this time because I'm staying a few days into winter break. And he has two American, he loves American Bulldogs. And I think the first time he wanted me to house it was because one, he trusted me. Two, because his first, well, I don't know if it's his first, but when I met him, he had an American Bulldog that was deaf. And then he would use American Sign Language with her. And I knew American Sign Language. So like sit or stay or wait or eat. And she was good. She was really good at that. And so after that, he was just like, oh, you're just going to take care of my dogs in my house every single time. And so uh, she looked very much like her, except without the spots. She was all white. And, uh, and then he also likes that I'm not afraid of this type of breed, you know, because this breed can get, they're very strong. They just need a lot of attention. So uh, I forget how Cesar Melan calls this, this breed, like the very, there's a word he uses. Um, I don't know. But anyhow, you know, I guess I'm going off on this rant. So, but, it, and I bike with them. Now she's not able to, I can tell her legs are in the back of the work. And this is what happens with interbreeding. But, uh, but I bike with them and they go on, on each on one end. But one time there was a raccoon. And then I was like, oh no, hold on tight. And then they started chasing the raccoon. And I was like, ah, on my bike. It was straight ahead. I thought you were going to say it. <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> Anyhow, so I'm always giving these side uh, digressing comments. So come here. So that concludes this episode. Uh, I guess I really look forward to doing this maybe at some point in another time when we need to cover <laughs> for an episode to not be so heavy on topics. And I appreciate uh, you both for joining this holiday special because I was like, I don't just want to do a, a greeting. I want something to be more than that. I want there to be more, something more substantial. So I appreciate both Kenny and Jess for participating and finding something that we could share. Uh, I wish everyone happy holidays. And again, to Brandy and Andy, uh, wherever you are right now, um, I hope that you're enjoying yourself. So we're going to conclude this episode uh, and then we'll sign out. Este, What's Left is a weekly political podcast as channel challenging the mainstream left. Post information about our topics and our guests on the episode notes where we can have this episode or on our blog, whatsleftpodcast.com. You can find past episodes to this podcast slash channel there and connect with us. I remind folks, if you like anything you have heard here, please uh, subscribe, rate, review, turn on your notifications to any of our platforms on Spotify, iTunes Podcast, Stitcher, Google Play, BitChute, Odyssey, YouTube, Rumble, or Telegram. And you can find our blog and any of those links that I just mentioned in the episode notes where you found this episode. Uh, if you would like to give us feedback about something you've heard or suggest something for us to cover, contact us through our blog. I'm Eduardo Barca uh, with co-host Jessica and Kenny Cepeda and we'll see you next time, Andy. And that concludes. Oh, one more thing. I'm so sorry. You can find our social media handles as at Don Eduardo Barca and at ZPK on Instagram and Jess's Twitter handle as at jhomie89. That concludes it. Thank you all very much and see you all next time. Ciao. Ciao. I read other people's poems when I can find poems that move me, yes. Unfortunately, some of it's very upsetting all too often, but I still come back to it because it gives me a great deal Poetry, after all, I think is one of the few ways in which we're allowed 
to touch emotion, to be reached by other people, in a sense, some of the clearest sharing of experiences that we have. And so I keep coming back to it over and over again.